The Achaemenid Empire lasted 208 years. The Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great lasted 231. The Roman Republic lasted 233. Romanov Russia lasted 234. Today, the United States of America is 244 years old. What happens next? Where do we go from here? What do we build out of the ashes? Hello, I'm Kanaz Filan, and these are notes from the end of time. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to our 17th episode of Notes from the End of Time. This is Kanaz Filan here with you. This podcast is delayed. It was delayed for a couple of reasons. The first, of course, is I, like most other Americans, was caught up in the drama of the 2020 election, which, while it looks like Joe Biden is going to be sworn in in January, still remains up in the air. I started an episode on that election, but I soon realized that for me, at this present time, it's kind of a dead end to talk about current events because... There's so It's a high-interest, low-information environment. The only sources we have available are people who are extremely polarized towards one side or another. That's been the state of affairs here in the United States for at least the past four years and arguably longer than that. So what I'm doing instead, and I think this might be a good thing for everybody to consider, is I'm going back to the subjects that I know best, history, philosophy, theology. Instead of trying to look at the present, I'm going to continue going back to the past, exploring the past, seeing the way that things which happened before are shaping the way things are going now. And the second, as I have mentioned in a couple of prior episodes, is that I am hard at work on a book which is largely based on podcasts I've placed here on Notes from the End of Time. So that has been taking up a great deal of my energy and my creative resources Can't guarantee you that you won't see any future delays in Notes from the End of Time podcasts because I'm really working hard on this. And so taking that approach again, I'm going to take a look at the main forces which are shaping the far left, the radical left, whatever you want to call it, in this country. And to that end... I want to start by looking at a term that gets thrown around a lot, but that is not really widely understood, and that term is cultural Marxism. I'm sure you've heard this before. It's generally become, on the right, the synonym for everything I don't like, the same way fascist and Nazi is a synonym for everything I don't like. In all of these situations, The words have prior meanings rooted in history, and it's important that we keep those meanings in mind if we're actually going to understand what's going on. So what is cultural Marxism? Cultural Marxism, probably one of the 
biggest influences on it is a guy you may not have heard of. He was an Italian communist. He was the head of the Italian Communist Party. He'd even gotten himself elected to his seat in the Italian parliament before he was arrested by Benito Mussolini and then spent the final 11 years of his life in Italian prisons. And his name is Antonio Gramsci. During his stay as an involuntary guest of Benito Mussolini, Gramsci compiled about 3,000 pages of what's come down to us as the prison notebooks, and he spent a great deal of time thinking about communism and thinking about what had gone wrong with communism. And one of the first things that he notices is that, according to Marxist theories, proletarian revolutions were inevitable once societies reached a certain degree of industrialization. And yet, while Western Europe had reached that degree of industrialization, while Western Europe had all the conditions necessary for what Marx thought would be an inevitable shift to communism, that shift to communism stubbornly refused to take place. In fact, the trade unions and the bourgeois who wanted to work with him seemed to be more strongly entrenched than ever. This was a problem that Marx and Engels had recognized. They had talked a little bit about the false consciousness, how workers considered themselves to be allied to the ruling class or syncretic with the ruling class rather than the opponents of the ruling class. But they had never gone into the kind of detail that Gramsci went into. For for Marx and for Engels and for Lenin and Stalin, hegemony involved gaining political hegemony, gaining political power. The famous analogy Lenin used was that instead of sitting down at the banquet table, workers were content to accept the scraps that their masters threw to them at their feet. But for the most part, communist efforts up to this point had been focused on taking control of the political sphere, gaining political hegemony, Gramsci made an important distinction. He felt that the capitalist state had two overlapping spheres. One of them was that political society. That's the society that rules through force. They command the police and the military. But there's also a civil society that rules through consent, or as Gramsci put it, manufactures consent. And manufacturing consent has become a big term lately. It was popularized by Noam Chomsky, who described the process in a 1988 book, which he wrote with Edward Herman, included, called Manufacturing Consent, the Political Economy of the Mass Media. For Chomsky and Herman, the function of the mass media is to amuse, entertain, and inform, and to inculcate individuals with the values, beliefs, and codes of behavior that will integrate them into the institutional structures of the larger society. 
In a world of concentrated wealth and major conflicts of class interest, to fulfill this role requires systematic propaganda. In countries where the levers of power are in the hands of a state bureaucracy, the monopolistic control over the media, often supplemented by official censorship, makes it clear that the media serve the ends of a dominant elite. It is much more difficult to see a propaganda system at work where the media are private and formal censorship is absent. Gramsci realized the bourgeois didn't just use military force to maintain control. They also reproduced their ideas in cultural life through their control of the media, through their control of universities, and through their control of religious institutions. Communists weren't going to win with just the direct, what, uh, what Gramsci called the war of attack, the direct revolutionary struggle in the streets, the struggle for the ballot boxes. They also needed, again, what Gramsci calls a war of position. We're going to have to struggle over our ideas, over our beliefs. We're going to have to attack the dominant ideas of normal and legitimate and replace them with our own ideas. And so how do you gain cultural hegemony? And one way that Gramsci saw toward that end was the creation of a historical block, and that was going to be brought together by reaching out to various disaffected coalitions through cooperation, through outreach and compromise, and bringing the coalitions over to your side. You could bring a coalition around to a common point much more efficiently and much faster than you can reach out to people on an individual basis and it's much easier to get a collection of subcultures together successfully than it is to wage a successful revolution against opponents who are not only better armed, but more popular than you. And now, 30 years after the death of Gramsci, still in captivity, in 1967, a West German student leader, who's also a big fan of Gramsci, named Rudi Dutschka, makes an allusion to Mao's long march across China, and he promises a long march through the institutions. And we could see that one of the things that the postmodern Marxists did, that the post-war Marxists did more precisely, was they began a campaign to take where Marx wanted to seize the means of production. They started seizing the means of cultural hegemony. And so you may have noticed that American colleges, Western colleges in general, tend to have a far higher percentage of Marxists and communists, of far left people, than any sampling of non-academics. Marxism today is not associated with factory workers or proletarians so much as it is with academics and college students. A 1972 book entitled Counter-Revolution and Revolt, Herbert Marcuse, and keep that name in mind because it is going to come up again later, said that Dutchka's plan was 
working against the established institutions while working within them, but not simply by boring from within, rather by doing the job, learning how to program and read computers, how to teach at all levels of education, how to use the mass media, how to organize production, how to recognize and eschew planned obsolescence, how to design, etc., and at the same time preserving one's own consciousness in working with others. And we can see Gramsci's historical block idea in the way that Kimberly Crenshaw's concept of intersectionality, which incidentally first appeared in a 1989 law review and was simply discussing the ways that, for example, a the problems of an individual as a woman and the problems of an individual as a black person might come together and that like the, each person might have different needs based on those challenges, on those differences, whatever you'd like to call them. And that idea has been used to create a consensus of people who follow radical left politics and who consider themselves activists for every kind of cause. I mean, you know, we've got black pride, gay pride, LGBT pride, fat pride, disability pride. The people who, be, who are presenting themselves as activists here, the people that are marching, are all all these activists across all these various groups all seem to be spouting much of the same jargon and have many of the same political ideas and they've been brought together in a coalition which Gramsci would have called a historical block. And Gramsci's ideas on cultural hegemony also go a long way toward explaining the ongoing attack on speech on the internet and in social media. The basic idea is that you can stop people from being racist by stopping talk about racism, and the way that you do that is through using social pressure, such as you know shaming, doxing, you know, making people lose their jobs, making them unpopular, because human beings are packed primates. We want to be accepted. When you have a lot of people screaming at you that what you're saying is horrible and wrong, you generally won't say it. And that's gone a long way towards what we've called cancel culture. And now, there's another influence on cancel culture that I want to get at that's pretty important as well. It comes from yet another group of people who were very influenced by Gramsci's ideas. They were also a group that was rethinking Marxism in the light of World War II. They come about a decade after him. They really get their start. They, in the light of World War II, in the light of seeing the rise of Hitler in Germany, you know, just as Gramsci had seen the rise of Mussolini in Italy, and in seeing the rise of Stalin and seeing the Stalinist excesses, you know, Stalin was pretty was one of the most brutal dictators of the 20th century. Stalinist society was not the communist utopia that everybody had been hoping for. 
And now a bunch, a group of German Jewish scholars who wound up in the United States as refugees with the rise of Hitler. They had been part of the Institute for Social Research at Goethe University in Frankfurt. They had been Marxist, or at least Marxist-friendly, and they were disappointed with the way they saw the post-war world going, and they looked to Gramsci, and they also looked to another source, Sigmund Freud. And the first guy to try this, Wilhelm Reich, got himself kicked out of the German Communist Party in 1933 for his book, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, Ten years later, writing the introduction for the English translation that would be released in 1946, Reich said something very interesting. He noted that today it is not the communist or the socialist parties, but in contradistinction to them, many non-political groups and social classes of every political hue that are becoming more and more revolutionary, i.e. are striving for a fundamentally new rational social order. It has become part of our universal social consciousness, and even the old bourgeois politicians are saying it, that as a result of its flight against the fascist plague, the world has become involved in the process of an enormous international revolutionary upheaval. Reich goes on in the book to say, when sexuality is prevented from attaining natural gratification, owing to the process of sexual repression, what happens is that it seeks various kinds of substitute gratifications. Thus, for instance, natural aggression is distorted into brutal sadism, which constitutes an essential part of the mass psychological basis of those imperialistic wars that are instigated by a few. To give another instance, from the point of view of mass psychology, the effect of militarism is based essentially on a libidinous mechanism, the sexual effect of a uniform, the erotically provocative effect of rhythmically executed goose-stepping, the exhibitionistic nature of militaristic procedures have been more practically comprehended by a sales girl or an average secretary than by our most erudite politicians. Reich today is most famous, of course, for his develop discovery of Orgone, and he was a huge figure in the counterculture of the 1960s. One of his ideas was we get character armor repressions that give us hang-ups, and what we could do is through various exercises, meditation, and learning to accept ourselves, let it all hang out. Reich is the first, one of the earliest members of what came to be known as Marxist Freudians. It's important to note here that they are neither Marxists nor Freudians, the way the Frankfurt School related to Marxism was, the, for example, the way that Santeria and Vodou relate to Roman Catholicism or the way that Christianity relates to Judaism. They, they use a lot of ideas which originate with Marx and Marxism, share many of the same viewpoints, and 
but they also differ from them in many aspects, and they're part of their own thing. This is the beginning of a new political movement that is neither wholly Marxist nor wholly Freudian. You know, it's the beginning of like what becomes our radical, our modern far, a good deal of what becomes our modern far left. Reich was one of the first apostles of the idea that sexual repression is inherently bad and sexual gratification inherently good. Freud, Reich, and Herbert Marcuse all agreed that sexual repression caused could cause reactionary behavior and lead towards authoritarianism. They also all agreed that mysticism and the religious impulse was largely the product of sexual repression. You'll note this, they had sort of a one-size-fits-all approach to everything. They're sort of like the guy with a hammer that sees nails everywhere. Sexual repression was the underlying problem at the root of our society. In Marcuse's 1955, Eros and Civilization, he explained that Freud believed that anti-Semitism had deep roots in the unconscious, jealousy over the Jewish claim of being the firstborn favorite child of God the Father, dread of circumcision associated with the threat of castration, and perhaps most important, grudge against the new religion, Christianity, which was forced on many modern people only in relatively recent times. This judge grudge was projected onto the source from which Christianity came, namely Judaism. If we follow this train of thought beyond Freud, connect it with the twofold origin of the sense of guilt, the life and death of Christ would appear as a struggle against the Father and as a triumph over the Father. The message of the Son was the message of liberation, the overthrow of the law, which is domination, by agape, which is eros. This would fit in with the heretical image of Jesus as the Redeemer in the flesh, the Messiah who came to save man here on earth. Then the subsequent transubstantiation of the Messiah, the deification of the Son beside the Father, would be a betrayal of his message by his own disciples, the denial of the liberation in the flesh, the revenge on the Redeemer. Christianity would then have surrendered the gospel of Agape Eros again to the law. The father rule would be restored and strengthened. In Freudian terms, the primal crime could have been expiated, according to the message of the Son, in an order of peace and love on earth. It was not. It was rather so superseded by another crime, that against the Son, with his transubstantiation, his gospel too was transubstantiated. His deification removed his message from the world. Suffering and repression were perfected. And we could see here one of the places, one of the many places where Marcuse is in sync with Freud. But one important place where he broke was Freud had the idea that sexual repression was necessary to holding up a civilization. We had to learn to control our sexual urges and use them you know, in, appropriate, in an appropriate manner to keep the social order together. And 
Marcuse challenged that idea. He had the concept that we could reach a polymorphous sexuality. And now for Freud, you know, the polymorphous perversity of the infant is you know, the infantile sexuality that just seeks gratification in everything. And that's something we grow out of. You know, what Marcuse envisioned was this polymorphous sexuality would make the entire body is going to be a thing to be enjoyed and an instrument of pleasure. And from that, we would see a disintegration of the institutions in which the private interpersonal relations have been organized, particularly the monogamic and patriarchal family. This utopian view of stopping your way to a better world became hugely influential in the late 60s and certainly through the 70s when we start seeing the rise of the gay rights movement. You know, we start seeing swinging, free love, pornography starts moving above ground. And you will note, those revolutions were pretty successful. Today, in 1986, William F. Buckley was suggesting that a good response to the AIDS crisis would be to quarantine homosexual men and drug users and intravenous drug users into quarantine camps. He also suggested that perhaps you could put a tattoo on the arm of an HIV-positive person so that intravenous drug users would know not to share needles with them. And you could also put a tattoo on their buttocks so that prospective sodomites would know that they were about to get infected with AIDS. Now, today we have gay marriage. In the 70s, you had to go to an adult bookstore for hardcore porn. Today, you can download it on your computer or even on your iPhone. There was a very interesting study in 1950 that was helmed by a Frankfurt School member, Theodore Adorno, and it was resulted in a book called The Authoritarian Personality. Now, Adorno and his colleagues created a series of tests by which a psychologist could measure a subject's propensity to either authoritarian or democratic thinking. The tests came from tests which were used earlier at the Frankfurt School. Only those tests separated fascists from revolutionaries. By the standards of the F scale used by the authoritarian personality, a conservative Bible believer would be marked authoritarian, but a radical who wanted to fight injustice by any means necessary would be shown as leaning democratic. And this was controversial from its release but it was widely accepted among American sociologists. Once again, the ideas got into the culture, they got into academia, which became a battleground post-Gramsci. And I mean, today, let's face it, today anti-far radicals burning down cities are freedom fighters and where people who want to go to church despite COVID-19 lockdowns are seen as authoritarian reactionaries.
And getting back to Herbert Marcuse, he wrote a 1965 essay entitled Repressive Tolerance that has become the blueprint for so much of cancel culture today. In that essay, Marcuse advocated active intolerance toward groups and movements which promote aggressive policies, armament, chauvinism, discrimination on the grounds of race and religion, or which oppose the extension of public services, social security, medical care, etc. He, he suggested rigid restrictions on teachings and practices in the educational institutions, which enclose the mind within the established universe of discourse and behavior. And what Marcuse hoped to create with that was a subversive majority that would achieve liberation and they would create a world wherein the individual could achieve maximal autonomy. He did say censorship of art and literature is regressive under all circumstances, but then went on to note that pseudo-art could be used toward oppressive ends. You know, history enters the definition of art and enters into the distinction between art and pseudo-art and You'll note that makes it really easy to censor any art or literature that you deem mere pseudo-art. And given Marcuse has this contempt for institutions that disagree with him, I, I think it's pretty easy to see who he would favor in a debate between historians, between people who wanted to preserve their statues, and an angry mob. And now a different formulation of Marcuse's repressive tolerance comes from a book Karl Popper wrote 20 years earlier in 1945. He talked about a paradox of tolerance, and this is from a footnote of the book, The Open Society and Its Enemies. In that footnote, Popper explains, unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the intolerant will be destroyed, intolerance with them. In this formulation, I do not imply, for instance, that we should always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies, as long as we can counter them by rational opinion, argument, and keep them in check by public opinion. Suppression would certainly be most unwise, but we should claim the right to suppress them if necessary even by force, for it may easily turn out they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument." They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument because it is deceptive, and teach them to answer arguments by the use of their fists or pistols. We should therefore claim, in the name of tolerance, the right not to tolerate the intolerant. I'm sure that name may sound familiar to some of you. Yes, this is the book that inspired George Soros in honor of his tutor at the London School of Economics, who was Dr. Popper, to found the Open Society Foundation. Karl Popper is frequently lumped in with the cultural Marxist, but as a matter of fact, 
he rather actively disliked the Frankfurt School people. He also was highly critical of Karl Marx. Popper was a member of the Communist Party very briefly. Left in disgust, Popper's idealized world, his open society, actually looked very much like the Vienna he grew up in at the turn of the 20th century. And at that time, Vienna was a pretty prosperous city. It was a multicultural and multi-ethnic city. It you know, was historically, it's the gateway between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. There were a lot of things going on there. Gustav Klimt was painting. Sigmund Freud, at the turn of the 20th century, has a psychoanalysis office in Vienna. You've got Gustav Mahler, Arnold Schoenberg. There was, there's a lot going on. And he grew up in that you know, very peaceful. Again, everybody got along. It was a nice, cultured, well-educated place. And he was a nice, cultured, well-educated young man. Popper dedicated the Open Society and its enemies to Friedrich Hayek. And Friedrich Hayek is not as well known today. He received a Nobel Prize for Economics in 1974. He's one of the leading figures of the Austrian School of Economics. And he's also, at the time, he was most famous for a book he wrote in 1943 called The Road to Serfdom, which is this stinging condemnation of socialism and a strong defense of free market economics. Popper is a classical liberal, not like what the word liberal means today. When I use that, I mean a liberal in the tradition of John Locke, in the tradition of the founding fathers. He was a cla like he was a classic believer in a free society which involved a lot of individual rights wanted a strong safety net in place for the poor. He also wanted to make sure that people had equal access to the law, to education, and to opportunities, regardless of race, color, creed, or other defining factors. You know, these are not, in and of themselves, bad ideas. I, most people, certainly most Americans would agree with them. And if it seems like I've painted an overly rosy picture of Vienna at the turn of the century, it wasn't all sunshine and light. The mayor during that time period of Vienna was a guy named Karl Leuger. Karl Leuger was insanely popular with the Viennese people. He was He's considered the guy who brought the city of Vienna into the modern world. He built a lot of gardens. He was wildly popular, as I said, with the people. He was hated by the aristocrats. He was elected to office in 1895. Franz Joseph, emperor of the Habsburg emperor at the time, refused to let him be mayor until 1897, and that only after a personal intercession from the Pope. Leuger was the head of the 
Christian social party. He was a devout Catholic, and he was very pious. He he got his start as a lawyer, where he became famous for helping poor people out. If you remember an earlier episode, Robespierre had a very similar career to this. But by all accounts, Karl Leuger was an excellent mayor, but he was kind of given to fiery speeches. He frequently criticized the aristocracy. And, well, here's an excerpt from a speech of his in 1899. Here in our Austrian fatherland, the situation is such that the Jews have seized a degree of influence which exceeds their number and importance. In Vienna, the poor craftsman has to go begging on Saturday afternoon to turn the labor of his hands to account. He has to beg at the Jewish furniture dealers. The influence on the masses in our country is in the hands of the Jews. The greater part of the press is in their hands. By far the largest part of all capital, and in particular high finance, is in Jewish hands, and in this respect, the Jews operate a terrorism of a kind that could hardly be worse. For us in Austria, it is a matter of liberating Christian people from the hegemony of Jewry. Now, I should note that most historians today agree that Leuger's anti-Semitic rhetoric was largely intended to get votes rather than based on any deep-seated personal feelings of his. William L. Shirer, who's most famous for writing Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, said that Leuger's opponents, including the Jews, readily conceded he was at heart a decent, chivalrous, generous, and tolerant man. He had many friends who were Jews. When he was asked about that, he said, well, I decide who's a Jew. Writer Stefan Zweig, who was a Viennese Jew, grew up in Vienna during his term of office, recalled his city administration was perfectly just and even typically democratic. But despite all this, Leuker had one fan who would later write very enthusiastically about him. He showed up in Vienna not long after his mother died. Pale young man of 18, wanted to get into the art school, was turned down. I think we know where this story goes from here, but Leuger is cited by many and was cited by Hitler as a large influence on many of his ideas concerning anti-Semitism and certainly many of his ideas concerning how to work a crowd. And there had always been an understanding in Europe that a Jew who converted to Christianity was a Christian and entitled to the rights of citizenship. That had been the case Karl Marx's father, Heinrich Marx, converted to Lutheranism so he could continue his law practice. Gustav Mahler famously converted so that he could get a position at the Vienna Opera House. And Karl Popper's father had converted to Lutheranism earlier, before he was born. So there is was a tradition there that, you know, a baptized 
Jew was a Christian. As the Bible says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free in Christ Jesus. And this basic understanding is starting to be threatened about the time that Karl Popper is growing up. Wagner famously criticizes Mahler, criticizes Mendelssohn, you know, criticizes other baptized Jews because, you know, of course they can't do real German, German music because they, ha they don't have German souls, they have Jewish souls. And this idea is going around Vienna at a time, and again, that struggling art student is going to pick up on those ideas, and this certainly shapes a lot of Popper's thoughts. One of the big ideas you see throughout open society and its enemies is this real fear and loathing of the great man, the idea that we have to defer to some kind of great man, he was really distrustful of any sort of demagogue coming to power because he, because he had seen this wonderfully tolerant, diverse, cosmopolitan society that he grew up in you know, torn apart by demagoguery. He had no more use for revolutionaries than he had for reactionaries. In the second edition foreword that he wrote in 1952, Popper says, Our greatest troubles spring from something that is as admirable and sound as it is dangerous, from our impatience to better the lot of our fellows. Gramsci and Marcuse wanted to work for the overthrow of the current society. Popper was more interested in improving the current society, making it more tolerant, more diverse, and getting away from the idea of nationalism again. Marcuse and Reich thought that religion was all based in the suppression of sexuality. Gramsci saw it as an instrument used to maintain power. Popper really didn't have that much of a problem with organized religion. He was baptized. He was not a particularly devout Lutheran, but he actually identified as an agnostic. He didn't really have a great deal of interest in theological questions, but he certainly saw that there were social benefits to Christianity. As he said in 1940 speech, the groups that he have a problem with are the various brands of totalitarianism and racialism. These are movements which, with fervent belief, try to destroy the greatest achievement of Christianity, the belief that we are all brethren, that all the differences between us are ultimately not very important at all, the belief, in short, in the unity of mankind. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, Karl Popper today is probably most famous for his fan, George Soros, who founded the Open Society Institute and 
that whose national and regional foundations and thematic programs give thousands of grants every year toward building inclusive and vibrant democracies. The Soros foundations have done a great deal of work in influencing politics around the world and in the United States on a local level. Soros-related foundations, people connected to the Open Society, Thousand Currents, have put large amounts of money into local races for district attorneys, for state senators, for city representatives, and no, this is not some wild-eyed crackpot conspiracy theory. The Open Society Institute has a website. You can go to it. It will list many of the projects it's connected to. You can go to the pro the projects that are listed, have links on them. You can follow them, and you can go to websites for these for these projects and offices, you can find something like Local Progress, which is a gathering of local officials to get together to promote certain ideals which are brought in from the Open Society Institute. The ever-reliable Snopes said that there was no evidence Soros gave money to rioters after Michael Brown's 2014 death, but... During that year, he did give at least $33 million to, and this is Snopes, already established groups that embolden the grassroots, on-the-ground activists in Ferguson. And if it seems strange that a devotee of Karl Popper would be supporting revolutionaries when Popper despised such a thing, Keep in mind also that George Soros, and again, this is not a conspiracy theory, this is well documented, one of the big players, major masterminds behind what are known as color revolutions. They happen throughout Eastern Europe. They've happened in several countries. In 1995, Deputy Secretary of State Strode Talbot said that George Soros' policy toward Eastern Europe was not identical to the foreign policy of the U.S. government, but it's compatible with it. It's like working with a friendly allied independent entity, if not a government. We try to synchronize our approach to the former communist countries with Germany, France, Great Britain, and with George Soros. So how do we apply this to current events? Well, at the time I'm recording this, it's 3 a.m. on Friday, November 13th, 2020. We still don't know for certain who is the President of the United States. We know that the election has been hotly contested. We know that there appears to be some evidence of voter irregularities. In fact, there appears to be a great deal of evidence of voter irregularities. It's not clear where this is going to go. It is clear that Trump is going to drag this out to the bitter end and do everything he can to delegitimize Joe Biden should Biden come into office. 
should Trump manage to pull this off somehow? And it's not an absolute impossibility. Honestly, at this point, I'd give it maybe 80, 20, 80% Joe Biden gets sworn in on January 20th and 20% that Donald Trump gets sworn in. What is absolutely clear is that whoever takes the oath is going to be seen as an illegitimate president and a usurper by a significant chunk of the United States population. If Trump pulls this off and he winds up in office for a second term, we know there's going to be civil unrest. It's going to be widespread because he'll be getting sworn in on January 20th and not during a long, hot summer. We might not see the kind of rioting we saw with George with the George Floyd protests and ongoing, but we're definitely going to see a whole lot of hopping up and down and screaming, and things are going to get ugly. I think everybody expects that. If it happens, I expect that sooner or later people will settle into this resigned, stunned, shell-shocked state. I think the public tolerance for continued rioting, and I think the energy for continued rioting, if Trump pulls this off, I think you're, in either case, I think we're going to see a trend toward political apathy in the United States. After four years of screaming, of hopping up and down, of chasing conspiracies, people are tired. They're just going to want to sit back and rest. A lot of the people that have come in to like the radical politics through intersectionality and through wokeness Again, those are very bourgeois movements. They don't spend a lot of time caring about the poor or the working classes. They're much more about the right of the individual to express their individual individualness. And so I expect to see that they will. You're going to continue to see Gay marriage is certainly, I think at this point, a done deal in American society. I think the acceptance of homosexuality, at least the tolerance of it within American society and within Western society, is a done deal. I think the aggressive promotion of the LGBT rainbow and the constant screaming about oppression is going to go by the wayside because, again, I think people are just getting tired of it. They're getting burned out. And after the pandemic finally lifts and after we finally know who's in the Oval Office, whichever side wins, I expect we're going to see a crackdown on Antifa and on rioters. Yeah, I know Joe Biden said Antifa is just an idea. Once he gets into office, 
Antifa were useful when they were trying to provoke Donald Trump into making into making some action that would mark him as a dictator and give everybody a chance to to get him out of office one way or the other. When the coup failed and if the election succeeds, they no longer have any use for riots. Riots are good when you're trying to become the establishment. Once you are the establishment, riots are just a hassle. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the quintessential establishment candidates. I mean, Biden's been in office for going on 50 years, and Kamala Harris is Hillary Clinton in Cafe Olay. Once the people who've were been spending four years screaming about the bad orange man finally get the orange man out of the way, they're not going to have any great interest in doing anything but celebrating and then resting on their laurels. The funding for a lot of these activist organizations will be diverted to other causes, which help better fit the idea of an open society and, of course, open markets. I expect that whoever gets into office will be facing several years, possibly a decade or more, of stagflation to deflation, continuing lack of economic growth in the United States. I do not expect the ethnic tensions which have culminated in the 2020 riots to improve. If anything, I expect we're going to be seeing greater resentment. Marcuse warned that the sexual revolution was in danger of becoming commodified and used as just another tool of sedation by the masters. And I think that that's one of the few cases where I can honestly say Marcuse got it right. I expect to see that a lot of the sexual dysfunction within our society, a lot of the broken families and broken relationships, which I've seen, you know, the broken the brokenness of the ability to form relationships brought about by the ready availability of casual sex and pornography, people are starting to look at that, and I think you're going to start seeing you know, resistance movements moving toward that. As I've said, I feel like the best answer to the problem of the rise of cultural Marxism is the same answer we had to the rise of communism. The Soviet Union couldn't wipe out Christianity. There was a 70-year campaign to repress it, including decades of bloody violence. And yet, as soon as the Soviet Union fell, the Russian Orthodox Church sprung right back up again, and it just keeps growing and growing. I think that looking to Christianity and looking to tradition, founding those communities, founding those faith communities, developing those networks and those faith networks, 
preserving the old traditions, preserving the old morality, preserving old customs. And I think doing that in the face of the cultural war, just like Christianity has been forced to do time and again in the face of war, may be the best, is the best and maybe the only chance for the survival of our tradition and our culture. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I thank you very much for listening. This is episode 17 of Notes from the End of Time. Kanaz Filan here with you. May God bless us each and every one. Kanaz Filan signing out.